You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Being with us today, uh, always a, a pleasure to do it. First thing on Monday morning, uh, I'm always geared up for that. Today's guest is Joe Finical. Joe, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. I'm I'm going to be adventurous today and go out on a limb here and and try to pronounce your location. Um, Joe's the person is the chief surveyor in the office of the Fulton County Engineer in Wasine, Ohio. Yeah, Wasine, real close. Wasine, almost Wasion. said that. <laughs> all the, when when words have all those vowels in them, the the, the southern accent doesn't handle that well. Right. So, but anyway, so it's Wasion. That's great. Um, and Joe is not only the the surveyor in the county, but he he writes a lot of really really neat articles, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But maybe as an introduction, Joe, you can tell folks who you are and how your office works, what's the kind of things yeah. you guys do. Yeah, of course. It's kind of a fun story. I, I, I go back and surveying back to 1994 when I was in high school, and there was a, a local municipal, well, a local uh, county, Fulton County, where I work now, that was installing a, a GPS control monuments across the county and it was in the newspaper and I was kind of a lost high school boy looking what I wanted to do with my my career and I I ended up setting up a an interview very informal with the chief surveyor at the time and I I came in and talked to him about GPS and about surveying and, and all of that and and long story short um John Metzger was his name he's he's long since passed away but I I ended up having his position here at the engineer's office and and perpetuating you know what he did for 38 and a half years. So it's a it's a pretty amazing story and it's it's a great office. We have a lot of really good staff engineers, um, a lot of a lot of good coworkers. So was the project a a county initiated project? It was. Yeah, it was a first order GPS control network that he set. And, it, and it's kind of neat because John at the time was in his 70s, and, and for a, a man of that age to really fully embrace GPS and the technology and to set up a network like he did, um, it, it was just truly fascinating. So, and, and we, obviously we still use those monuments today. We continue to perpetuate them. But really, what John was known for back in the day was was the section corner referencing and remonumentation, and that's that's really the core part of my job. Is is maintaining that foundation of the county and continuing to dig corners, you know, to perpetuate them for the next generation, if you will. Right. It's um, interesting you were you were talking about the fact that he was embracing it in his 70s. That, that is pretty remarkable. I was going to say, for those of us who are uh, one step away from being in our 70s, sometimes I'm not sure we embrace things as much as, much as we should. Uh, yeah. Especially when we go back, I, you know, my first surveying job was about thirty years before yours. So, um, right, that's a well, it's a different it, mindset, of course, and all the the new things that have come along, and it is a real adaptation. That uh, fortunately, surveyors are pretty inquisitive and and like to learn things. So, right, I think right. that all in all, we've done a pretty good job of adapting. Sure. No, it's, it's just a it's a fun story. We we actually recognize John locally at the state level for a surveyor of the past and and i told the same story i said there there was a young high school kid that was kind of lost and interviewed john and 
the the neat thing is even after after John retired, we would meet him for lunches and and he lived in an assisted living home for a while and and he would convince the driver of the assisted living home to drive him through the county because he still wanted to look at the projects. <laughs> and that's really and I felt cool. ob- yeah, but I I felt obligated after he passed away to go to the funeral and, and we were there with a few employees that worked with him and and at during the funeral they, that he already had his obituary written in his request, and he said, are there any employees from the Fulton County Engineer's Office here? And we kind of stepped forward. Well, John wanted us to be pallbearers, so, so we had that that honor and privilege to, to do that. So that's kind of a fun story, and it, it gives me a lot of drive here at the county to keep things going just because I, I knew him and I knew how hard he worked and, and and, and even on top of that, just there, there were so many other surveyors that, I mean, some of these guys worked longer at the county than I am alive still. So it's 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 a big shoes to fill. Yeah, for sure. And with with his background and his uh, embracing of GPS and new technologies, he he's one of those people that's the sort of the perfect candidate for the final point program. I don't know if you know about that, but no, not really. Yeah. It's a program that we do here at NSPS in uh, collaboration with Burnson, Burnson Markers. Mm-hmm. They create these brass discs that looks just like a, a brass disc that you'd find on a, a survey point somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens is the, the the friends of the surveyor will go out to the gravesite and and get the coordinates, geographic coordinates. Right. And then Burnson will make the marker with the person's name on it and the coordinates of their final resting place. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, sometimes people in a, put them in a monument uh, and put it in the ground. Sometimes they just take the flat marker and and use an epoxy or something to adhere it to the tombstone or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it's well, pretty I, cool. I, I actually I wrote all this down while you're talking because I I think it's something that would just be a huge honor to him, especially with the tie to. To oh yeah, his age exactly. and his yeah. yeah. No, he was he was way above. He was way ahead of the game at, in in '94 and understanding all of it. But yeah, I'll well, look yeah, into spe- that for sure. Speaking of uh, historic things, and I guess looking back uh, through through uh, John's life, of course, he's seen a lot of changes. Have we all? But it kind of leads us to the primary topic we're going to talk about today and i don't want to shortcut you on anything else you want to talk about going in oh no that's fine uh, but i i was intrigued by uh, this sort of uh, connection if you will between the the two folks that are in your in your articles and uh, when i first started reading the one about uh, riley my first i was thinking What's this picture of Africa doing on the thing? <laughs> right, right, and then of course, as I read the story, it became very obvious. But uh, that—that's yeah. quite quite an interesting story, and uh, you must have had to do quite a bit of research to put all that together. Yeah, it's it's become a almost an obsession of mine lately, and I hate admitting to that. But but once I get engrossed in researching some of these topics, there, there really is no end to it, and, and we you start reading more and you start ordering books online and diving into the books and and it, and it just keeps taking you down a different trail but it's funny you say that because when I when I submitted the article to Mark for for review he he wrote back and he said you know this is a pretty amazing story it's it's just fascinating he says but 
we need a little more of a, a tie to surveying itself. So I, I actually tweaked it a little bit, and I, you know, I, I put in all the ties to Benjamin Huff, and I, I put in the ties to the actual Riley Post, and, and how we use some of that data to to backtrack and prove the initial point of the Michigan Meridian and all that work I did. But it's it, it's just it, it's phenomenal to me to just to be able to continue to learn and do that research and you know every time I speak I, I tell surveyors I said that the biggest thing that the, the biggest downfall sometimes especially when you're in the public service is you, you can get stagnant pretty easily and you have to be careful I mean we, we do a lot of topo work here you know topo all over the time but unless you push yourself to, to do some of this other work in, in research, you're really avoiding that stagnation and you're staying sharp, and that's what I love about it. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you're talking about Mark. This is the kind of story that is right down his alley. You know, Mark oh, really likes the historical aspects of everything. And we're talking about Mark Cheeves, by the way, for the audience who right. may not know who we're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it's just fun. I mean, when you get into this stuff, I mean, the whole Riley story came up in a, you know, just a random conversation in a, a simple Google search, and and Riley's name popped up as a, a captain of a, a an American ship, the Brig Commerce, and and then, you know, I, I started reading that story because it was so fascinating about about his enslavement in Africa, and then, you know, we we obviously found the survey plants here at the office and we started putting two and two together and we're like you know this is the same guy this is the same guy that was that was marched across the saharan desert as a slave and and of all places he settled back in northwest well he he worked in fulton county in northwest ohio it's just crazy yeah that's that's um one of those, uh, what's the what's the title of the show? Something about uh, too weird to believe, or something like that. that yeah, kind of. Kind that of. those two things would have come together, and it turns out to be right where you are. I mean, that that's what's the chances of that happening? Yeah. Well, and, and ironically, years earlier when I was doing the Michigan Meridian work, I I used Riley's work because his his were the farthest uh, measurements to the south. And, and he took incredible notes in his in his um, GLO notes. And every time he crossed the Michigan Meridian, you know, well into Ohio, quite frankly, where it didn't even matter, he, he would note when he crossed that line. So then when, when I did my work to prove the initial point, I was using Riley at that time, and I never knew who he was. He was just a just another deputy surveyor at the time. But, yeah, once it all came together and then, you know, you you read three or four books later, and and then you start passing on that topic to everybody else, and everybody else is like, "Wow, I've never heard of this book. I've never heard of Riley himself," and and it's actually become a goal of mine to let people know who he was. And I've even went as far as talking to the director of our local historical society, and he's gonna. He's going to have prints of Riley's book and Dean King's book in the gift shop. Oh, you know, nice! Just to yeah, just to, to further spread that knowledge, if you will. Just that that story just really needs to be told. That's one of my biggest goals here. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're probably going to have to carry this over to the next segment for this next question I'm going to ask you because we're only a minute out from the break. Um, But the the question that came to my mind was, um, how was it that, that Riley was in Africa to begin with, and then, of course, I, you, you can talk about the stories we go through the through the show. But was he part of a, a shipping company, or how did he? End, why was he there? Yeah, he was he was actually the captain of a ship, the the American brig Commerce, and, and they left from Connecticut. They went down to New Orleans, and then went up to Gibraltar, and then he was captaining the ship and. and very heavy fog he got off course because they they had no idea where he was they couldn't navigate by the stars and there was a there was a famous cape. I hate to interrupt oh yeah we'll, we'll but, continue with yeah, that. but but that's a good place to leave people hanging to come back after the break <laughs> so good. let's go take our first break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes okay got a Shonstead locator you're no longer using want to help a young surveying student Donate it to an NSPS-recognized surveyor education program by shipping it, at no cost to you, to Shonstead. The factory will refurbish it to like new condition and send it on to a deserving institution. Pass your locator down the line and build on your surveyor legacy. Go to www.shonstead.com slash NSPS for details. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Getting into underground utility location? If so, you'll want to know about the Schoenstatt Instrument Company's MPC kit, a multi-purpose combo for locating both ferrous objects and underground pipes and cables. And because it consists of two instruments in one package, it qualifies for trade-in allowances on two locators. Any kind, any make, any condition. Contact your dealer for details or visit www.shonstat.com. That's S-C-H-O-N-S-T-E-D-T dot com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. You know, Joe, one of the things that uh, that comes to mind in thinking about Captain Riley and we hear stories all the time. As a matter of fact, I think probably all of us in surveying have some story to tell about how it was we came to get into surveying. I'm not sure I've ever heard one quite like this, though. Oh, his um, his, his story is absolutely crazy. And and my, my parents just went on a six-week, well, they're both retired, but they, they kind of travel around the, the U.S. And I before they left last time, I, I gave them two books. The, the one was Riley's original narrative from 1817, and... The other one was from Dean King in 2004, and I, I said, Dad, I, I said, I know you love to read. I said, take these with you and and um, see what you think. And and then at the end, I gave him a copy of the article. I said, this will sum everything up and, and why I enjoy this. And they just came back the other day, and they're just like, wow. They said, this is fascinating stuff. 
which, which yeah, it absolutely is. So with with Riley, he was a, a a merchant ship captain, I believe you said. Correct. So yeah, they they uh, gathered a load from New Orleans, and he had eleven crew members, and and they went to Gibraltar to to basically switch out loads, and and then they were they were heading southwest, and they were supposed to go around the Canary Islands, but they got off course. And then the fog was so dense, they, they say sometimes they couldn't even see their hand in front of them. But they, they got off course, and long story short, the, they, they crashed into the rocks of the western Saharan Desert at what was known as Cape Bohador. And, and it, was a, it was a very famous cape for shipwrecks at the time. And they, they crashed, and the, the crew, everybody survived, but they... You know, they tried to get all the supplies they could, and they, they went to shore. And there was always talks back in the, the early 1800s of carnivorous native Arabs, and, and they had fears of this. That was always the fear of crashing on the Saharan Desert. And indeed, they, they encountered some native Arabs, and, and the, the one story from the book, they call him the jackal, and they say that he had teeth, like, literally protruding out of his lip line, just physically looked like an animal. And the, the natives ended up stabbing and, and potentially killing one of the shipmates. So the whole crew returned back to sea or, or back to the shipwreck, which was, I mean, the whole boat was tangled up on rocks. And they ended up getting in a, a long boat just kind of like a, a life raft of today's standards and it very rickety and they they ended up well they had two decisions either go back and kind of face their maker on on land or they took their chances and they they went back out to sea and they traveled approximately another 300 miles but but the wear and tear it took on their bodies of just the dehydration and the the starvation, they ended up, I guess, accepting that they'd have to, to be enslaved by the Native Arabs. So they they landed again, and, and then that's indeed what happened to them. They, they became slaves at that point. So their 300 miles was basically parallel to the coast? Yeah, yeah, they just yeah. continued to travel along the coastline. And, and ironically, if I forget the numbers exactly, but I think if they would have went maybe another 50 miles, they, they would have got out of the territory of the Native Arabs, and they would have actually been in a territory where, where they would have actually been rescued instead of enslaved. But, but they never knew that, and, and you try to have to put yourself in their position. They were, they were literally dying in the ocean, so they figured, well, at this point, um, you know, we either die out here or we we become slaves and kind of hope for the best once we get on land. And, and that's kind of where the story really progresses, and, and it really shows how remarkable remarkable of a man Riley was because he, he adapted to the, the native tongue. He, he learned their language. He was able to communicate with them, and after spending months on the desert, he was, he was able to communicate with his captors and his masters and convince them that he was worth a healthy ransom. And, and even though it was a fully made-up story, he, he was able to convince them that if they if they hiked them north up to Mogador, 
that that they would be paid this ransom. And and he was totally bluffing the whole time. But they they ended up getting there and just by by fate they they found a council member by the name of William Wilshire and without hesitation he agreed to pay the full ransom that they were asking for and and they were basically rescued uh, unfortunately the the state of uh, disrepair if you will that these men were in they they always know Riley he was 240 pounds I think he was 62 and after he was rescued from life on the desert they say that he was down to 90 pounds. He was literally a walking skeleton. Wow. But but, he, but even worse off, he, he said his crew members, you know, might have been down to 50, 60 pounds. They, they were blind. They were fully bearded, covered in lice, and, and just, uh, you know, stripped naked. Some, some of them, all the skin was totally burnt off their body. I mean, they were just in a terrible state of... Just, just horrible conditions. And, and sadly enough, the neat part about the Dean King book is, is he tells the whole um, story of all the shipmates and how long they lived and, and what they did after they were rescued. But the common theme between all of them is their their illness and their sufferings basically lasted their entire life. And, and especially noted with Riley, he was constantly getting terrible fevers, illness, and, and it was it was all due to his sufferings in Africa. So was Wilshire, did he just do this as a magnanimous gesture? Or? In, in a way, I mean, he was, he, he knew that Riley and his crews were American, and, and he, he had no doubts that he would get reimbursed for this, but he also knew that he obviously had to do this because these men were slaves and they needed to be rescued so he kind of took a gamble personally but he, he was never concerned about getting the money back and and once once all this was found out the the ransom from the american government was was instantly paid back to wilshire so it was never an issue and it's kind of neat riley stayed in touch with with um, wilshire basically for the rest of his life. He would travel back overseas and visit him, and they ended up being lifetime friends. Doesn't that name appear somewhere in a location in in either Ohio or Michigan or somewhere? I, I thought yeah, I saw that right. name later in the article. No, no, you're absolutely right. There, um, James Riley himself founded a town, and, and he built this town on the St. Mary's River, in what's now Van Wert County, Ohio. It's, it's right up against the Indiana state line. Route 33 goes right through it. and It was supposed to be a, a very prosperous town. There's still a post office there, but it had one of the first post offices in the state of Ohio. But at one point, the canal was supposed to go through there, but it never did. And, and since it did not, the I mean, Wilshire was supposed to be a big deal. It was platted out to be a very big town. And it does still exist, and you can still find names of the, the shipmates in in the streets of the town. But it's um, not very populated or developed at this point. But yeah, Wilshire, Ohio, is definitely on the map, and and that's where it comes from is from 
William Wilshire. So he, how long did it take him once he was back to get to to Ohio? Was he? Well, he did some other things before he went there, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a funny story because he, he came back to to Connecticut and and I I think he had five or six kids at the time and, and crazy enough back in the day there his, his wife was pregnant when he left and the baby was born he never saw the baby and the baby was never named until he came back and then he named the baby um, Wilshire as well so it's it's crazy but but after that Riley really struggled with. Uh, you know, he he worked for the government for a while, and then he he says right in his that there was a sequel that was written by Riley's son, and he went for a four thousand mile soul searching journey on horseback, and he ended up over in Lexington, Kentucky, and then he traveled north through Ohio, and then he eventually went back east. But he, you know, this this obviously affected him mentally and physically more than we can ever imagine so he he took a 4,000 mile horseback ride and you know trying to figure some things out but he, he ended up coming back and, and he was pretty prominent in DC and it was in it was in 1819 that that he was recommended to be a deputy surveyor and he was sought after because of his navigational skills as a ship captain and then his, his obviously proven uh, what do I want to say just that when, when he was in the Saharan desert he would he would keep track every day of his course by the stars and he would keep a string with him and he would tie knots in it every day that's how he kept track of his of his days but he was keeping track of distance and bearing if you will when he was in the desert so he he was sought after to become a deputy surveyor, and then and then he eventually settled in Northwest Ohio with his family, and, and started Wilshire and, and bought property, and then you know went about being a deputy surveyor all over Northwest Ohio. Now, did did that son named Wilshire also become a surveyor? No, well, he, he another son of his, James okay. Watson Riley. And, and it, this is where it gets a little confusing because there's survey plats all over by James Riley, who would be Captain James Riley, and then there's a James Watson Riley, which was his son, that became a deputy surveyor. And I remember when I first started doing my research, I I was hoping and praying that what I was researching, especially here in Fulton County, was not of his son which which would have been cool in its own but i was really open for the real deal and <laughs> i i was i was able to prove in some of his writings from his sequel that he actually was he was here in fulton county in uh, 1821 and then his son was his son was farther south of here and then over in indiana as a deputy surveyor but yeah you'll see the name james watson riley as and, and then there's a lot of stuff. Watson, Watson, or um, Riley Creek. There's a Lake James over in Indiana. There's there's a lot of ties to the Riley family. Right. Well, we are ten seconds away from our next break, believe it or not. Good time. So, 
when when we come back, we will talk more about Riley, his work, and then his connections moving forward. So let's go to break. We'll be right back. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Attention surveyors, are you aware that that yellow stick you're using is saving lives all over the world? Yes, that pin finder is clearing fields and villages of unexploded cluster bombs and other hidden explosives in over 25 countries. Johnstead, in cooperation with international mine action programs, provides free locators to where they are most urgently needed. To find out how you can help, visit the NSPS website at nsps.us.com. And thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're, we're back on the on the show today and with Joe and uh, talking about Mr. Riley and his exploits both uh, across the seas and once he got back here and I, I was pretty taken with that whole idea of a 4000 mile horseback ride uh, it's hard to even think about a 4000 mile plane ride <laughs> these days exactly a lot on his mind huh yeah exactly so then later on during your your time there, you you got in, involved in a meridian marker that kind of tied back in here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this the meridian marker predates the the Riley story, but um, the the cool thing about working in Fulton County, Ohio, is we we have two state lines. We have the current Ohio Michigan state line that was surveyed in 1818 by William Harris. And then we have the old state line, which was surveyed in 1817 by John Fulton. And there's a little confusion locally. A lot of people think Fulton County is named for for John Fulton, the surveyor. But unfortunately, Fulton County, Ohio, is named for Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steamboat. Right. And then, as I understand, we're on air in Fulton County, Georgia, which is a, a totally different Fulton. So... Um, it, it, it's a fun story, but we, we have we have two different state lines in Fulton County, which comprise two different survey systems. We have the Ohio survey from the Ohio baseline and first principal meridian going north and east, and then the northern part of Fulton County, north of the Fulton line, it was actually surveyed as part of the Michigan Territory in 1821 to 1824. And, and that all originates from the Michigan Meridian and Baseline, south and east of that. So we have two different survey systems, two different state lines, and then we actually have the Michigan Meridian that runs right through Fulton County. So it, it's I, I just think I'm I'm just so blessed by working in this county and being able to retrace surveyors like William Harris, 
John Fulton, Robert E. Lee was actually on the survey crew with Andrew Talcott when they retraced the Fulton line. And then we'll we'll talk about uh, Samuel Stinson Gannett here in a little bit, but but Samuel Stinson Gannett retraced and permanently monumented our North Line, the William Harris Line, in 1915. And then what I mentioned, the Michigan Meridian, that was surveyed by Benjamin Hoff in 1815. And and that goes right through the western side of Fulton County. It started at Fort Defiance at the intersection of the Auglaise and the Miami River. And the, the Michigan Meridian was, was designed to run the west line of the 1807 Treaty of Detroit. So Huff ran from Fort Defiance north through Ohio, which, as I say, technically didn't matter. The, the whole purpose was to get into Michigan and then to set up the two million acres for the proposed Michigan bounty lands for the for the um, military warrants for their for their property, and then there's a long history in this of itself. But when when they surveyed the Meridian and the townships in Michigan, once they got there, then they they found the conditions to be so horrible. In, in the ground so wet and saturated and swampy that they they totally eliminated the the, bound, the, the bounty lands for the soldiers and they, they sent it elsewhere. And all of the surveys in Michigan actually came to a halt because of this and they didn't start it until the next season. I mean, th- this is a whole other crazy story because what these surveyors went through was just... Um, it was just terrific, but that's that's the that's the Michigan Meridian, and then along that line, I, I started doing internal research about the Meridian itself, and and in 2015, my proposal for National Surveyors Week was to was to get an Ohio History Connection marker. Now this is one of those cast aluminum. Um, it's, it's very large, three or four foot across, probably three foot tall, on a six foot post. It, it's an Ohio historical connection marker that gets cast, and you do a, a formal dedication ceremony, and gets a lot of publicity. But I, my, my goal was to do this for National Surveyors Week of 15, commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Michigan Meridian Survey, and, and it was a it was a success. We had success in the fundraising campaign to do that. The The application process is very intensive. It's 20-some pages. You have, to, you have to do a lot of research and biographical, um, just a lot of fact-checking to make sure everything's right, because once this thing is cast in aluminum, it's pretty well done. So you have to have that ordered from um, from where? Yeah, that's a good question. It, you, you, you submit everything through the, it, it used to be the Ohio Historical Society, and then they changed names to the Ohio History Connection. And then all of this is done through a, a company called Sua Studios in Marietta, Ohio, which is, which is very um, 
historic in itself, but it's it's uh, they they have a really cool website if you ever look up Sua Studios and and they explain the whole process of how they cast these markers, and then and then the whole thing gets shipped and and delivered, and then it's up to the applicant to actually install it and then go through the whole uh, press release section to, to try to get a, a well-attended audience when you actually unveil it. And, and we had, I bet we had over 100 people in attendance. We had the local sheriff on standby because it was on a, a federal route. It was kind of busy. And then we had the local DOT set up caution signs. It was it was a pretty big event a couple years ago. It was pretty fun. And you were able to do all that during the during Surveyor's Week? Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I'm hoping. My my goal, if timing fits, is for Surveyor's Week of next year, we're going to do a similar historical marker. We already have funding secure. The only step I have left is to secure permission from the state of Ohio to put the marker on state property. But we're going to do a similar marker next year for the to retell the Riley story. And the the position of this marker will be in a, a state nature preserve called Gall Woods. That's G-O-L-L. And the, the neat thing about Gall Woods, and some of these pictures show up in the article I wrote for the American Surveyor, but it's a it's a native patch of, of woods, one of the oldest ones in the state of Ohio. And some of the some of the oak trees that are in there, burr and white oaks, are over 400 years old. And and the reason I like to take people there is it, it's a it's a swamp land. I mean, we're in the Great Black Swamp here in Northwest Ohio, and when you go out in this swamp land amongst 400 year old burr and white oak trees you really put yourself back in time to what these deputy surveyors were working in 200 years ago. And it's it's just amazing when you stand out there and imagine pulling a chain through the swamp and fighting off the mosquitoes and just the, just the conditions would have been horrible. Yeah, in the uh, one, a couple of the pictures in the article actually um, showing the post set by Riley it's pretty easy to see the size of the trees. Um, pretty pretty interesting stuff. That's it's kind of um, interesting that that one that's shown in the picture ended up being right beside that tree, but not engulfed by it. Yeah, yeah, no that 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 post has a really crazy story. And and I was a junior in high school when the crew dug that up, and I I actually found it in my office just leaning up against the corner. And I had a little tag stuck to it because the crew would they would document where they dug these out of. But that that post actually was 38 inches below a road. And when wow. when they when they dug those GPS control monuments I talked about earlier in '94 from John Metzger, the the survey crew hand dug six foot down, and they installed these concrete Bernstein monuments in the road over top of the section corners. So. Unfortunately, every amount of evidence that was on that corner got removed, but it was well documented and then and then replaced with a, a six foot long concrete monument. But that post was was excavated in almost perfect condition that was set in 1821, and it's it's just phenomenal. So I, I take that thing with me all the time when I when I go speak on this topic across Michigan and Ohio. And people just—they just love seeing it because 
very few people ever get to put their eyes on an original post or touch it or smell it. They oh, yeah. like it. For sure. As you were talking a moment ago, uh, when we were on break, you and David were talking about the, the Fulton County, where you are in the Fulton County, where he is. Right. Um, and you mentioned another Atlanta area connection. You mentioned Marietta, Ohio. Right. Right. A, subur- a suburb of Atlanta is called Marietta. Yeah, I've stayed there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. There's some kind of synergy going on there. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> right. Trust me, I understand. This happens all the time in surveying. It's oh yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. It sure does. <laughs> but yeah, it's a the the the, the Gall family up in Gall Woods is, is pretty fascinating in of itself. These this family came over from from France. They spent 37 days on a boat coming over to Ellis Island, and then and then traveled by horse and wagon and settled in Northwest Ohio. And then they they walked to the general land office to buy property, and and basically that that property has never left the Gull family until it was sold to the state of Ohio. So it's it's just a and, and it's amazing locally. There's a lot of people locally that have never been there, and that that's part of my education process. Is hey, look, you have to go here, and my hope is is that once we get this historical marker there, they can actually associate it to the conditions that these general land office deputy surveyors actually went through. And then honestly, in the eyes of Riley, I mean, this would have been a walk in the park after what he went through in Africa. So. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Yeah. So how much property is was is there? Oh, it's a good in question. At one point, they, they grew from the original purchase was 80 acres in 1837, and I think it grew to over 600, but I don't think it's it's quite that large now that's owned by the state. Right. But a good portion of it is completely native timber, and it's, it's impressive just to see these towering oak trees. Pretty amazing. Yeah, that's that's always in, inspiring when you go to places like that uh, where you know there's nothing ever happened there other than what you're seeing right now uh, over right. all that time, and it's kind of grown up. So yeah. uh, once yeah. again, we're 10 seconds away from break. So let, well, let's go to that break, and, and we'll come back and try to bring this connection back together. Um, and okay. I want to have a few more questions about the Meridian. So we'll be right back. Got a Shonstead locator you're no longer using? Want to help a young surveying student? Donate it to an NSPS-recognized surveyor education program by shipping it, at no cost to you, to Shonstead. The factory will refurbish it to like new condition and send it on to a deserving institution. Pass your locator down the line and build on your surveyor legacy. Go to www.shonstead.com slash NSPS for details. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quick stakes today. 
This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Getting into underground utility location? If so, you'll want to know about the Schoenstatt Instrument Company's MPC kit, a multi-purpose combo for locating both ferrous objects and underground pipes and cables. And because it consists of two instruments in one package, it qualifies for trade-in allowances on two locators. Any kind, any make, any condition. Contact your dealer for details or visit www.shonstat.com. That's S-C-H-O-N-S-T-E-D-T dot com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. In our last segment, Joe, I want to I want to talk about the the whole issue of the Ohio Michigan line and how that's played out over time and what its impact is. Yeah, this is a it's a really fun story actually. The, the there's there's some there's a little known fact if you look at the the great seal of the state of Michigan, there's a bunch of Roman numerals on the bottom, and if you if you uh, calculate what it is it shows 1835 and technically michigan didn't become a state until january of 1837 so a lot of people are like why why is 1835 on our on our seal now i actually live in michigan i was i was raised in ohio even though i was raised in the michigan survey which confuses everybody (laughs) but in in 1835 michigan applied for what was considered a constitutional convention and and they were denied and what happened there was a, a fiercely fought over strip of land on the north part of Ohio which goes through Fulton County and it was it was 400 square miles of what they called the Toledo strip and and this could literally be an hour long story on itself but it, real quickly if you if you draw a straight line from the southern tip of Lake Michigan due east that was the line that was written in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And that was supposed to define the state line between Ohio and Michigan. Well, when, when they actually surveyed that, they found out that if you did that, the mouth of the Maumee River, and more importantly, the terminus of the Miami and Erie Canal, would have actually fell in the Michigan Territory. So Ohio rewrote their constitution to say from the southern tip of Lake Michigan in a northeasterly direction to the north cape of Maumee Bay. And then that got into all these surveys, the William Harris survey, the John Fulton survey, the Talcott survey, the uh, Andrew Porter survey, and then most famously, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, the Samuel Stinson Gannett survey of 1915. But the the cool part is, is there was this disputed 400 square miles. And in 1837, when Michigan came back to apply for statehood officially, they the the agreement was we would grant you statehood if you basically give up on this 400 square miles and give it to Ohio. But the condition is we will make you a state and you will be granted 9,000 square miles of the Upper Peninsula. 
and at that time it didn't really mean much to them because it was just a wilderness area. But then once development occurred and settlement, they found out, I mean, beyond the natural beauty of the UP with Taquanman Falls and Pitchard Rocks National Lakeshore, that there was large amounts of iron ore deposits up there. And, and obviously 9,000 square miles of that, they, they far won the, the war. And there's a, there's a t-shirt company in Michigan called the Mitten State, and they, they print a t-shirt and it says, we won the Toledo War. And, you know, if you've ever been up to the UP, it's, it's pretty easy who won. And I always say no offense to Toledo, but, um, yeah, it, you can't even compare. It, it's yeah, I'm going to mention this to you when we talked earlier, but uh, my friend John Matonich grew up up there in Bessemer on the west end of the UP. Right. And the first time I visited him, I flew to Marquette and drove across. Crazy, um, pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's untamed wilderness, but yeah, it's it's pretty amazing up there. But yeah, that that kind of leads us to that. Uh, the, the other surveyor I mentioned, Samuel Stinson Gannett, and the the marker I did for the Michigan Meridian with Benjamin Hoff. You you have, obviously have to choose a location of where you want to put this marker. Well, the Meridian we were. We were at the 200th anniversary of the Michigan Meridian, and I've done a lot of work on the retracement of the Ohio-Michigan state line along with Dean Ringel and the folks from Ohio and Michigan. And the Ohio-Michigan state line was resurveyed and, and permanently monumented in 1915. So I just felt it to be appropriate to do a 200th anniversary of the Meridian and then a 100th anniversary of the, of the state line retracement and then do a, a two-sided marker at that location. So so the marker got planted at the intersection of the Meridian and the state line. So the, the second side of this historical marker talks all about a uh, little-known surveyor, and, and I, I kind of personally think he kept his name out of the papers, but his, his name was Samuel Stinson Gannett, and he would have been the younger cousin of Henry Gannett, and, and Jerry Penry, he's done a lot of research on Henry Gannett, and he, he's known by most people as the Quad Father. He kind of was the founding father in the production of the topographic maps that we use today. And Henry Gannett was, was very famous, but you rarely hear very much about Samuel Stinson Gannett. Well, one of my latest works for, for research and this is going to be for MSPS, for the Michigan Society here in a few weeks, but the article that I'm preparing actually talks about a full history of Samuel Stinson Gannett and his role as the state line boundary retracement specialist. And he basically traveled all over, all over the United States solving and resolving and retracing state lines. And Ohio, Michigan was just one little example of that. He, if, if we have any Texas listeners, he surveyed what you guys called the Gannett Line, and, and he officially put an end to the moving meridian, which is the 100th meridian line. And to, to this day, it was considered the most scientifically accurate survey on record. 
and he surveyed for two years between 1927 and 1929, and he worked solely at night navigating by the stars and doing triangulation to avoid the heat waves. And I've talked with some Texas surveyors. This is the state line between Oklahoma and Texas, by the way. And over the years, there was differences in, in uh, opinions of where the meridian was, up up to 4,000 feet different. Well, Samuel Stinson Gannett came in, and he really locked in where that meridian was, and he set monuments every two-thirds of a mile for over 100 miles. And talking to some local surveyors, they said even with today's equipment, they're, they're within hundreds of a foot of being on wow. the 100th meridian. I mean, just phenomenal work, phenomenal. So that that's just one little example. He, he went up to the Idaho-Washington state line, and between the Snake River... He surveyed straight north, retracing a GLO surveyor by the name of Reeves. And uh, same way, just, just absolutely phenomenal work. Uh, he, And this was a retracement survey. He found the old Reeves monuments. And another one, he did the Montana-Idaho state line to the east. And you're talking extreme mountainous terrain and territory. But the really cool thing about the Montana-Idaho state line is be, between the, I think it's the Bitterroot Mountains up to Canada, it was defined as the 39th meridian. Well, here in Ohio, we're at 83 degrees west longitude, and I just mentioned Texas at 100. So how can Montana-Idaho be the 39th? Well, it, it comes from the 39th meridian from washington dc oh so so samuel Simpson gannett had to calculate from spokane washington they had a conversion station of the difference between west longitude from greenwich and west longitude from washington and then he had to triangulate over to that border and then run a a line on a meridian up to canada and i mean these are just a couple examples. He did New Hampshire and Vermont. He did Maryland, West Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee. I mean, we could write a book about this. It's Samuel Stinson Gannett is. I mean, he ought to be in the. He ought to be in the record books. It's, it's, That's he, pretty amazing. We we talk a lot about surveys that were done. As a matter of fact, uh, going back to our Atlanta connection, another friend who is now in Florida but was in Atlanta for years has written a couple of books about Ellicott. And, and all of his work, and and then we you're talking about Gannett. I mean, he was all over the place. Oh yeah. And just yeah. thinking about getting to these places at the yeah. time he was doing all this is pretty amazing. Just just to get there, much less all the work he did. Oh, it's truly fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and, and we can drive around a square mile and survey a section in about a half hour now. I mean, right. We're we're so spoiled using these satellites from thirteen thousand miles in space that we have it very good. <laughs> oh yeah, we we uh, I guess every generation thinks that they have it worse than than the one before them, or the, had it worse than the one after them. I guess I should say. Right, I, right. I, I first started serving in the '60s, and so things have changed a lot since then. But even even what we were doing then is nowhere near any of this stuff. 
Well, you have uh, people to always ask me that when I when I go and talk, and especially for different career day at schools. They said, "How has this changed since you started?" And you know, I really got into it in '95, '96, but I, I always go back into the history of how it started, and then you know, basically how easy it is for us nowadays to, you know, especially with the unmanned aircraft systems now. That that really gets young kids' attention if I start talking about remote controls and wireless technology and. You know, I always take in my robot to show them, and that, that's the stuff they really they really love to see. They don't like hearing the old history. Yeah, because it's all new and cool stuff. And in, in a way, though, um, it almost puts a lot of responsibility on us now to make sure we understand what it's doing sure. uh, rather, rather than just using it. And these guys, they understood all that. They got it. So, yeah, I think uh, I think that can be a, a conversation in the future. We yeah, actually on on this coming Thursday, I'm I'm going to speak alongside Gary Kenton, and we're going to talk about perpetuating our profession. And you know, that's probably one of the biggest topics is is just trying to get new folks in here and, and really having them understand what we do. Oh, absolutely. So we are, believe it or not about 40 seconds from being through the show today we made it with with no problems whatsoever as we always well, thank do. you thank you for yeah. having me it's an honor and, and i'm privileged to be here well we'll let's talk about this whole thing uh with a show with maybe you and gary talking about this perpetuation thing i think that'd be a great show so yeah we'll, yeah we're gonna we'll be talk with him i'll be talking to him too so let's let's think about that yeah no that's i i, I do that quite a bit so that'd be good Excellent. Well, that sounds great. Well, thanks again for being with me today, Joe. It's been fantastic to hear the stories and really appreciate you joining me. Okay. Thank you, Kurt. I couldn't tell. Take care. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. From the pictures exactly. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Quick stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction 
or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com. 